Welcome to Sports Medicine Weekly on 670 The Score, your on-air resource for fitness, nutrition, and injury prevention and treatments for today's weekend warrior and professional athletes with renowned specialist of elbows, knees, and shoulders, Dr. Brian Cole, along with other health and fitness leaders, and your host, Steve Cashel. Sports Medicine Weekly, heard every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 670 The Score. Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm Steve Cashel. Welcome to our first ever edition of Sports Medicine Weekly here on 670 The Score. I'm the radio host of the Chicago Bulls, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Brian Cole, head team physician for the Chicago Bulls, co-team physician for the Chicago White Sox, sports medicine specialist, orthopedic surgeon from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush and Rush University Medical Center. Brand new home, Dr. Cole, The Score 670 a.m. here as we begin our eighth season. Steve, I'm super excited. They say things are done in sevens, but here we are for our second seven, right? Beginning eight. Really it's happy and great to have our new producer, Shane, with us. Lucky seven, just like the Bulls. They got the seventh pick. That's right. How about it? Yeah, it's yeah. a lucky seven. Yeah. We've got to think that way. Absolutely. Well, let's bring on uh, our first guest. We're going to have Dr. James Andrews, uh, one of the renowned surgeons later in the show. But our first guest is a five-time Olympian swimmer, 12-time medalist. How about Dara Torres talking about the Olympic Olympic experience? Dara, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so honored to be on your first show. I appreciate that. We are really, really glad to have you. Uh, Dara is uh, actually uh, a significant other of a really close friend of mine who's an orthopedic surgeon in uh, Boston, soon to be moving to Florida, right? But known Tom, uh, her husband, for a long time and uh, had the privilege of meeting Dara at a dinner recently and just so excited to have you on the show. I could have spoken to you for hours at our dinner, but I know, I know you had to talk to uh, all the other guests. You're, you're, you're a great hostess, and uh, we really appreciate it, but it's just terrific to have you on the show. Yeah, Dara, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Dara is considered one of the greatest female competitors swimmers of all time, entered her first international swimming competition, age 14, competed in her first Olympic Games a few years later, 1984. It goes on and on, and the oldest swimmer ever to compete in the Olympic Games at age 41. Dara, how did you do that? (laughs) That was pretty much an old hag back then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I think a lot of it has to do with perseverance and you know swimming is very much a year-round sport we could maybe take two weeks off a year at most and so it can as wonderful as a sport is when you're in it for so many years it can become a little bit monotonous and so every time I thought I was done with the sport like after my third Olympics I had retired and uh, retired for about seven years and thought all right you know I'm old I'm 25 um, you know, I need to move on with my life. And I don't know, like seven years after that, after the 92 Olympics, I got the itch again and decided to do it and came back and swam at, in Australia in 2000 and then retired again. So I got to say 33. I'm really old. This is like crazy. I, I need to stop swimming, moved on with my life, got into television, some modeling. And, and then like six years later, I had my daughter and wanted to swim again. And I think for me, actually having those breaks, not knowing I was actually taking a break, I, I honestly thought I was retired. Um, I think it allowed my body to sort of recover. And, and all those years that I was not swimming, I was still staying in shape. I'm very much into health and fitness. I love uh, exercise. I love the way it makes me feel. And, um, you know, it relieves stress and loves the way it makes me look. So um, I always have had exercise in my life. And I think that really helped a lot in the years that I was off. So when you, so, okay, so we're talking about the age of 14, first Olympic Games, something like that. And then you fast forward. Can you, do you have any sense? of how you felt physically fast forward 41 
rewind the clock to 14 because one of the things I find is so fascinating is I we deal with a lot of aging athletes and I think the capacity to perform can if you if you keep it right with all the things that you pointed out nutrition frequency of exercise, the way you exercise, giving yourself a break, which is probably one of the most important things you said. Do you think that you were as physically competitive at 40, 41 than you were when you were younger, or was there a true fundamental difference in terms of how you felt physically? So when I said I had broken my first world record when I was about 15, that was also the American that I broke, and then I rebroke it at 41 years old, and the time was probably a second and a half faster at 41 years old than I was when I was 15. Um, my first Olympics at 17, you know, at, at that age, you're so young. You can recover quickly. You just kind of do what the coach tells you to do. Uh, you're pounding the yardage, not really, you know, thinking about what's right and wrong. Like back in those days in the 80s, it was all about, like, how much yardage you can get in. When you fast forward to, to when I was training at 41 years old, I'll never forget my my first workout. Um, I was training with the kids, and I'm in the pool, and, and I, I want to do what they do. And, and I'm, I'm starting my sets with them, and we finish the set, and we're taking a break. And one girl turns to the other, and, you know, I just had my daughter, and she's like, turns to a, like, like a 15-year-old turns to a 17-year-old. She's like, who are you taking the prom? And the other girl's like, I think I'm getting my ear pierced, and I'm thinking, okay, what diapers do I need for my daughter? You know, and so there was like a huge age discrepancy, but I wanted to do what they were doing. And I think that they didn't want someone who was older than their parents beating them in practice, and I didn't want some young whippersnappers beating me. So I tried to train with them, and I learned very quickly that first week that there's no way I can do what they were doing. Like, my, my body just couldn't do it. It was a matter of mentally wrapping my head around that and understanding that, I came from the old school where the more you do, the better. The heavier lift in the weight room, the better. Yeah. And now, fast forward into at 41 training, um, the more efficient you are in the weight room, the more efficient you'll be in the pool, which is much better than feeling like you have so much muscle that you're going to sink. And I, need, my body needed to recover, so I went from nine workouts a week when I was younger to five workouts a week in the pool. And so it was. I think the hardest thing was not my body wrapping around that, my my head wrapping around that, because I came from just the old school thinking. So right. that less, was less is uh, more. very different for me. Yes. Yeah, yes, exactly. I get it. I get it. We're visiting with Dara Torres, five-time Olympian, 12-time <laughs> medalist. I'm Steve Cashel with Dr. Brian Cole. This is Sports Medicine Weekly here on 670 The Score. Dara, one of the, uh, considered one of the greatest female competitive swimmers of all time. She's competed in unprecedented five Olympic Games, won a total of 12 Olympic medals. Which Olympic Games, Dara, uh, stands out to you the most? You know, it's funny. So, so at 17, like I said, I was this young kid kind of bouncing off the walls. I mean, at those Olympics, there was like Michael Jordan was there and Mary Lee Retton and Carl Lewis. And there were just like these amazing athletes. And, you know, I wasn't really, I mean, I was an Olympian, but I wasn't really well known like those guys. And so, you know, I was just kind of like, oh, my God, this is so cool to be here. But I could really appreciate it. I mean, at 17 years old, you can't, you can't, you take that in and, and you can look back on it and stuff, but you can't really appreciate it as it's happening. If I fast forward to being 41 years old, having my daughter, it's not about really the uh, that which Olympic Games or which city or how many medals I won that was best for me. It was really what it took to be the best I could be at those Olympics. And I would have to say that would be when I was 41 because I was, I was dealing with having a child and her being a toddler by the time the Olympics rolled around. 
you know, being two and a half years old to trying to understand what my body can and can't do and really what it took to be the best I could be at an older age. So I have to say that my last Olympics was probably my favorite and most memorable because I could really appreciate it at that age. You know, I had, I've had the privilege of getting to know a number of Olympic athletes, and it's interesting that the Olympic sort of psyche compared to a professional athlete compared to a college athlete, compared to a sort of an adolescent. They're all so different. And I don't think there's anyone more in at a given time than an Olympic athlete, just because you sort of have this perception that you've got this narrow window to get it right. And it's so precise. Like It, it, it could change on a dime. It could change, change with a breath, a, a lapse in concentration. I mean, it, it's just that's what I think is so captivating about it. And I, the one thing I'm interested to know is now, you know, you're sort of at a different phase in life. You have all these things that you're speaking on and sort of filling these buckets. I know you're really interested in women's empowerment, your concept of not giving up a dream. You had a wonderful book, which uh, uh, I've actually started to read, Age is Just a Number. Uh, You're not too old to chase your dream. These are all things that are super important for people who are used to living an active life. So what's in your life now that, like, fills that bucket you know, you had that enormous, emotionally, physically gratifying bucket training all the time, the attention, all of that stuff. What is it now in your life that sort of is equivalent? And I know it's going to be different, but what do you, how do you package it all together? I know it's somewhat of a personal question, but I think it'd be fascinating to sort of understand what do you use now to fill that bucket that you had before that was so gratifying and so intense? That's actually an amazing question because I think a lot of athletes really have an issue with you know, and the Olympic athletes, that they train their whole entire life um, for this one moment. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do it five times, but it was different, you know, each time. And it was just as rewarding and, you know, just as nerve-wracking as the first one that I was in compared to the fifth one. But with that being said, um, a lot of Olympic athletes really go through, like, a depression after they're done doing doing something like that and training their whole life for, for a sport. Uh, because that's all they're used to. That's all they know. And then they get done. And look, the media picks who they want their Olympic darlings to be and who they're going to focus on. And so maybe some athletes have something in their head that they thought, well, you know, if I win a gold medal, you know, maybe I could, you know, be on the cover of Wheaties or do this, this, and this. And it's just not how that works. And so, so it really is uh, uh, really, there's a downside after you're done competing if you don't have something to fulfill that. And for me, I think I was very lucky. Uh, to uh, my last Olympics um, in 2008. I had my daughter to look forward to. And as you guys know and parents know that your your children are the most important things in your life. So when I'm sitting there at the Olympic Games in 2008 and I'm getting ready to swim my final uh, in the 53, so I'm looking around these young kids in the room. And, you know, here I am, 41, and the youngest one is like this 15-year-old freckle-faced Australian in there, I'm thinking, oh, my God, they think this is, like, the most important thing they're ever going to do in their lives, when in reality, like, my child is the most important thing, and she's, I'm in Beijing, and she's back in Florida waiting for me, you know, to come home, so it really wasn't as difficult for me being a parent to come home and sort of switch, you know, do that switch in my head, going from something I've done my whole entire life to having to take care of this, you know, little thing that's relying on me, so, um, you know, for me personally, I love competing, and so I try to take it out on my husband when I'm, like, on the golf course. But there's not really anything that can can measure up to what it felt like to be in the Olympic Games, to get that medal put around your neck and listen to the national anthem play. But it's just another chapter in my life where I'm doing something else. So I was fortunate enough to have something uh, like my daughter 
to to have to come home to when I was done swimming that is something completely different than what I had previously in my life, and I was okay with that. I think other athletes aren't okay with retiring from their sport, and that's, that's a very difficult thing for an athlete to go through. You're listening to Sports Medicine Weekly here on 670 The Score. Steve Cashel and Dr. Brian Cole are visiting with five-time Olympian swimmer Dara Torres. Dara, have you ever had any significant injuries while swimming or working out? Oh, my God, I can't even count them on all my fingers and toes. Really? I've had so many. Well, you know, here's the thing. So everyone thinks, okay, I swim such a great sport. It's great to see joint, and it really is. It's a non-impact sport. Um, for me, when I was training, the toughest thing was probably my shoulders, which is what a lot of swimmers uh, go through, the constant motion with, like, rotator cuff, I had a torn labrum, you know, and I had numerous surgeries on my shoulders. But it's also the cross-training we had to do. I had some crazy coaches that had us doing, you know, nutty stuff out on the football field and stadium stairs and weighted jump ropes and just, I mean, the stuff I can go on and on about, you know, pulling slides across football fields, and it, it was nuts. And because of that, um, and probably because of my anatomy, um, I have uh, kneecaps that kind of laterally go out. And so the constant pounding of all the dry land training that I did basically wore out all the cartilage on both my kneecaps. And so the biggest surgeries I had to get were cartilage transplants in, in my knee. But I've had numerous, numerous surgeries, and, you know, I just, you know, I can't think my, my psyche uh, after going through a few of them is just like, okay, just go in there, get it done, and let me, you know, rehab and get back into my training again. And a lot of athletes, you know, go through that, and some can be devastating. I mean, after 08 is when the first cartilage transplant I had, and it's a long recovery. It's about, like, a year and a half to three years recovery, and I tried to make it go at it in 2012 and missed the team by nine one-hundredths of a second, so less than a tenth of a second. And, you know, I was proud of myself to be able to come back, and, you know, being 45 years old, obviously my recovery was uh, much less than even when I was 41. But, yeah, you have to endure a lot. Your body gets through put, put through a lot, and a lot of athletes, you know, go through a lot to be the best they can be, and that's a sacrifice you kind of have to make. Did you have, when you were uh, performing in the Olympics during those those years, did you have any surgeries that you actually recovered from and got back to uh, competition? Yeah, the, um, um, so the one probably that was closest to an Olympic trial, Olympic Games, was probably my knee, and I had a scope in, um, in 2000, January of 2008, so it was, um, Probably, I guess it was like six months before Olympic trials. And, you know, scope isn't that bad, but, you know, I had some cartilage damage and stuff, and that's kind of when it started. It went from, like, a grade one to a grade two, and then, like, right after the Olympics, it was like a grade four where I was missing, like, all my cartilage. So it really wore out super fast. Um, and that was probably the closest one I had had um, to, to having to recover, you know, sort of quickly and stuff. But a lot of the surgeries really weren't during Olympic year. It was either, like, at, right after or the day two years before. So I was lucky in that regard. Visiting with Dara Torres. Uh, final questions for you, Dara, the uh, Olympic swimmer. What is your fitness routine today as you balance your family, as you said, work and everything else in your world and in your life? Well, I think it's very important to get to get a workout in um, at least maybe four or five times a week. Like I said, I, I love the way it makes me feel. It relieves stress, and it's just it's always been a, a part of my life. So um, I swim maybe once or twice a week, uh, which is you know I find it like almost a chore now because I live in Boston and it's cold up here, and you have to layer and you go find a pool, and the pools aren't super big up here and stuff. So uh, it's a little bit of a chore, but I've really gotten into boxing. I, I was in a um, celebrity boxing match to raise money for cancer research. Um, got my rear kicked, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, so I've really enjoyed that because it's a great overall body workout. I'm actually now a, a part owner of a 
sort of boutique fitness studio called The Bar Method, which I've been really enjoying. I'm training to be become an instructor up here, so I do that a lot, and uh, I just really try to mix up my workouts. I spin, and you know, I had um, a college transplant a little over a year ago, and my knee's feeling great. It's called a Macy, and it's been awesome, and so um, I'm just kind of getting back to where I, I'm not, like, intense like I was. I don't ever want to be intense like I was in swimming. I was, I was like that for so many years, and I just really want to enjoy working out and just, you know, stay fit. What's your perception of the interaction between diet and exercise? Do you eat to exercise? Do you, ex- I, do you exercise to eat, or is it somewhere in between? That's a good question. Um, well, you have to remember, so I don't know if you guys know this, but I had an eating disorder back in college, and so food was always sort of my enemy for about five or six years, and it took me probably 10 years total to get over the fear of eating food. So I developed it in college, and then when I decided to train, so I graduated from college in 90, and when I decided to train for the 2000 Olympics, um, I had a coach who was very much into, uh, you know, the uh, Atkins diet where you eat more protein, you can have burgers, but you have one bun instead of two or, you know, stuff like that. And sort of developed my, my eating habits became much better again after being able to train like that and eat. But I'm, I'm one of these people that women hate because I'm thin and I can kind of eat what I want and still you know, not gain weight. Um, my mom's like that. It just sort of runs in my family. But I do in my head, because of having eating disorder, I train to eat. So um, I, I eat in, in moderation, though. Like if I want a cupcake, I may eat half of it just to satisfy my cravings. I've learned over the years that um, you don't deprive yourself because the more deprive you, you deprive yourself, the more you'll want and the more you'll eat. So um, it's always better to satisfy your cravings and have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and then work out, and you'll feel fine. That's what I say. Have a little treat, Dr. Cole, you know? Exactly. Steve, St- Steve treats himself on a daily basis. <laughs> I, I'm better because of this show. I'm I know. cutting down. I know. I, know. I mean, my goodness. All right. But All right, and final question for you, Dara, and we really appreciate you joining us. Dara Torres, the five-time Olympic swimmer. What are some of the biggest obstacles and challenges facing women in sports today? Well, I was very lucky to come right after uh, Title IX happened. So, as you guys know, Title IX is having equality in sports for women. Um, so, I didn't have to go through what a lot of women went through in, like, the 70s and before that. Um, I think that, obviously, equal pay is an issue, and I know the Williams sisters have really you know, stepped up and, and have, you know, been vocal about it. And I think that's really helped in, in women's sports. Um, I think that's probably the, the biggest issue right now is, is equal pay um, amongst athletes, just like it's happening in the celebrity world, too. So um, that's definitely something that, that is out there. And also, you know, a lot of the stuff going on with USA Gymnastics and, and other sports where, you know, women have had to endure um, – you know, a lot of abuse and stuff, and, and I'm glad that it's coming to the forefront, and hopefully, you know, we can put a stop to it. Steve, you know, uh, to your point and to Dara's answer, um, she's going to be one of our, our guests, our celebrity guests at the uh, Chicago <laughs> Sports Summit, so might as well take time to give it a plug. It's October 3rd. I went last year. It was terrific. Yeah, it really was. Are you going to go this year, too? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I loved it. Okay, I loved good. it. You know, there's only three, maybe four panels, but one of the panels is going to be dedicated towards uh, women in medicine, uh, gender differences, Title IX. 
uh, something that we've really been unable to address effectively. Now we have an awesome panel, and Darrell, we really look forward to your contribution to that. So that's going to be October 3rd, 2018, and that's going to be here in Chicago. Uh, that's called the Chicago Sports Summit, and uh, proceeds will uh, go towards uh, After School Matters, uh, Girls in the Game, and uh, Supporting Orthopedic Research. So great cause, but it's just a, it's a half a day that has tremendous uh, value, and this is a great topic. We love it. Thanks so much for joining us here on our first uh, show on the score, Sports Medicine Weekly, and uh, continued success. Best to you and your family. Thank you so much, you guys. Appreciate it. Dara Torres, five-time Olympian, 12-time medalist, talking about her life in the Olympic experience. I'm Steve Cashel with Dr. Brian Cole. Our producer is Shane Reardon. Our coordinating producer, Teresa Ann Seeger. This is Sports Medicine Weekly. On 670, The Score. You're listening to Sports Medicine Weekly with Dr. Brian Cole and Steve Cashel on 670 The Score. And we're back on this Saturday morning. Steve Cashel, Dr. Brian Cole, Sports Medicine Weekly. Brand new season, brand new home here on 670 The Score in Chicago. Our next guest, famed orthopedic surgeon, Dr. James Andrew, orthopedic surgeon, founding partner for the Andrews Institute for Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Uh, wow, he's worked on Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Bo Jackson, Jack Nicholas, Brett Favre, John Smoltz, Roger Clemens back in the day. And Dr. Cole, I know you go back as well with Dr. James Andrews. Dr. Andrews has been a great role model. I can tell you as a team physician, we all look to him and how to manage some really delicate issues. I'll tell you, one of the things that we've learned over time is it's less about the how you get it done from man- managing a medical condition to managing the system around the athlete. And uh, he is not only uh, an expert as an orthopedic surgeon and an amazing thinker, probably the most knowledgeable in balancing all the challenges of the system around. You know, Steve, when something happens, we've got everyone whispering in our ear and the athlete has everyone whispering in their ear and there's there's an entire uh, organization behind an athlete when they get injured. And managing that is Something not something you learn in medical school. It's just something you you garner through experience, and I can tell you he's taught me an awful lot about that. And one of the great stories from uh, way back, uh, Dr. Andrews performing surgery on Red Sox pitcher Roger Clemens back in 1985 for a labrum tear. Could you go back and tell us about that, Dr. Andrews? Well, that's when uh, the arthroscope was just coming into vogue, and we were learning about it. And, of course, we first started off with the arthroscope, which was the big revelation in sports medicine in the last 50 years, obviously. But we were doing it mostly in the knee. And in, in trying to be a complete sports medicine doctor, I went beyond the knee and, and got interested in the shoulder and the elbow. And, of course, that leads you to baseball. And I started uh, scoping baseball players' shoulder, trying to figure out why they hurt because we didn't know anything really about the throwing shoulder. And Roger Clements, uh, who was a, a rookie at that point, having played uh, college baseball at Texas, University of Texas, came to see me because he had a lingering shoulder problem and his ability to move up the ladder in the pros early uh, was stalled and nobody really knew what was wrong with him. Uh, I saw him in Columbus, Georgia, where I was working with Dr. Jack Houston at the Houston Sports Medicine Clinic and told him that I thought he had a torn labrum, which wasn't a bad guess, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I scoped his shoulder and cleaned up a his rotator cuff and, and his labrum. In those days, all we could do was clean them up. We didn't have any way to repair anything arthroscopically. Some kind of way, lo and behold, uh, six months later, he was back pitching at the major league level. I think he had almost 20 strikeouts in one game there. So that sort of launched my career 
I call him my signature patient in, in, in baseball. Sort of launched my career in taking care of baseball players through the last so many years. But that was that was the story with Roger. The other good thing that Roger did was we didn't really know how to rehab or how to pre- do preventative exercises with the throwing shoulder. So Roger worked with us yearly all during his career. He'd come back in the in the off season for a tune up, and he worked with my therapist that worked with me so many years that most of you know about Kevin Wilk and. And between Roger and Kevin, they developed the, the throwing, basic throwing shoulder preventative maintenance exercises uh, that we now call uh, the Thrower's 10. And Roger was the poster boy for that. He continued to do those throughout his entire career, which was long, and never had any more problems with his throwing shoulder or his elbow. So he was really instrumental in, in developing those exercises and, and, and showing that they if you had maintenance exercises for your career, you could be healthy. And that was Roger. Roger today is a real backer of everything we do in our foundation and a close friend. Wonderful story about Red Sox pitcher Roger Clemens with Dr. James Andrews, our guest here on Sports Medicine Weekly, Steve Cashel, Dr. Brian Cole. I want to ask both Dr. Cole and Dr. James Andrews, uh, Dr. Cole, how, is, uh, how has that changed? You know, Dr. Andrews just said he cleaned up the labrum tear. Now you're repairing it, right? Well, no. So this, that's, a, that's a great question because I think it, was, it has to be Jimmy O'Coin. Look, if you want to find a reason to operate on a baseball player, get an MRI of his shoulder, right? So, Jimmy, correct? Pretty much accurately stated? Absolutely. Yeah. So We've what, learned a lot more about it. That's right. It's part of the, of the normal wear and tear in the thrower's shoulder, so you have to really be careful about how you decide when they when they need to be operated on. In this case with Roger, though, he was shut down, and he'd been through. It wasn't just it happened a week ago. It had been going on for, for six months or so. And did you – so let's clarify. So at that time, I want to you, – you, did he have a debridement? We'll explain what that is. But is that, did he have a repair or a debridement? There was a, de, a debridement. Right. We so, didn't have any way to repair right. anything arthroscopically. Which is what, yeah. Well, what so, yeah, so, that, so the thing – the important point is, you know, this is a guy who couldn't play, treats him, but he does a relatively straightforward, at the time it was maybe complicated, but relatively straightforward procedure. Then we went through this whole evolution of identifying labral tears that maybe were abnormal, maybe weren't, but it's just a fact of overhead athletes. I mean, they're probably adaptive in some response, in some respects. In other words, if we, if we image all of our Major League Baseball players, at least half will have a significant labral abnormality. And to Dr. Andrews' credit, he was a minimalist but got him better. The point is that in some ways, and Jimmy, I'd be interested in your points, your thoughts on this, technology has driven a lot. Well, a lot of the way we do things has been driven at least initially by technology. And we sometimes we, we, we learn and then we go back to the way things were done years ago. So you were certainly forward thinking enough that less was more in that instance, and that's all he needed. You know, you have to admit, we've changed some of the things we've done over time because we have this new amazing technology to do things, but sometimes simple is better. And what you did was a pretty straightforward, simple thing. And these players walk around with these abnormal, abnormalities all the time, you know. And we have to be able to decide what's relevant and what's not, and then what's the least amount you need to do to get an athlete back to play. And what he did was the least amount he needed to do to get it, get it back to play. I can tell you that isn't always the case. I mean, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, you know, technology sometimes goes forward. Sometimes it takes us backwards. But a period of time in the in the 90s and, and even through uh, the, the 2000s, we developed techniques for, with anchors and our, we could do arthroscopic repairs and we could sew the labrum down. And indeed, we were doing that almost uniformly and perhaps we were making throwing shoulders too tight. 
And as we look back at the results that I published when we didn't know how to, to sew them down, we just cleaned them up. My results were better back in the 80s than they were in, in the 2000s. As it turns out, we go two steps forward, one step back. Yep. And now we're, we're being a lot more selective about the label repairs that, that we do when we actually repair them. And we've gone back a little bit to what we did back in the 80s, and that's just cleaning them up and, and, and maintaining their, their fluidness in their shoulder joint. You know, to throw a baseball, you got to be a little bit loose. We've learned when to and when not to, I guess. I hope, anyway, it's still evolving. And as you know, we still have a long ways to go in the throwing shoulder, even though we've done all this work on it for how many years now? 30? Yep. Dr. No, I... James Andrews, our guest, famed orthopedic surgeon. He's at present the Dr. Andrews serves medical director, orthopedic surgeon, Auburn University, also works at the University of Alabama, Washington Redskins, Tampa Bay Rays. And so, Dr. Cole, take us to modern day then. What has changed then about the labrum tear? Is it still an arthroscopic procedure? Yeah. You know, I think what's become mainstream is the way we we treat it technically in, ter- in terms of using arthroscopy is, you know, for our listeners, is just using a camera. It's a, you know, a five, six millimeter metal tube that we can insert into a joint. It's, two holes then, right? It could be two, it could be three, it could be one. One, yeah. one the camera yeah. goes in one yeah. hole and then you're working with instruments on the other? Right. So, you know, I think what's interesting, while that's interesting and exciting, to me and to others, what's more exciting is learning how to make proper decisions and learning what's normal and abnormal. Throwers have a myriad of abnormalities or presumed abnormalities based upon an MRI or an image. But in many respects, it's the normal wear and tear and it's adaptive. It's part of what makes them a good thrower. So while it may look as abnormal anatomy, our goal is not necessarily to restore normalcy because they've evolved that way over time as throwers because, let's face it, the velocity, the forces, the energy that gets transmitted to the joint is enormous. So what we have to be careful of is not not trying to reverse something by repairing something that shouldn't be repaired. And I can tell you that, you know, that's where the art of doing less, not more really comes in and also understanding what's truly normal and abnormal because what's abnormal for you may not be abnormal for a guy who's throwing 90 miles an hour, you know, you know, 40, 50, 60 pitches. Do you understand? Right. That's often, or a swimmer or a volleyball player, that's often what enables them to do what they do. The challenge is when it becomes abnormal anatomy that becomes painful, what's the treatment and what's the least amount we can do to get it better? Dr. Andrews, are you seeing more with, with baseball pitchers in the shoulder or in the elbow? I can tell you this. When I walk in an examining room on Monday morning with a new baseball player patient, first thing I look at is I can, I can tell they're, they're either a shoulder or elbow, and I'll ask them, uh, what's bothering you? Because that's the first thing I want to know. And if it's the elbow, I'm sort of relieved. But if it's the shoulder, I'm saying, oh, my goodness, here we go. Wow. Uh, but in my practice, surgically, uh, the elbow is, is more commonly operated on than the shoulder is. And we're more, more conservative to treat the shoulder non-operative than we are uh, the throwing elbow. So I think at this point in time, I'm seeing more elbows than I am shoulders. And yeah. that's good. Uh, yeah. Not good for the player, but it's, it's good for being able to take care of them. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're, what you're alluding to is when they have an elbow problem, it's a very discreet, well-defined entity that is often a structural issue. It can be associated with abnormal anatomy, and you fix it, and they get well. The difference is in the shoulders. It's just, as I said, this myriad of sort of things that may be abnormal, but we don't necessarily have that. Uh, it's not a foregone conclusion that going in and fixing it makes it better when there's plenty of non-surgical things that can be done to make them well. How do you generally... It's a lot more complicated to try to decide what to actually do with the throwing shoulder uh, than the elbow, too. And with the throwing shoulder, 
our rule is we don't operate on the throwing shoulder uh, unless they fail conservative treatment. And the first thing I tell a baseball player, particularly these young ones that come in, they want to be operated on because they have a little minor injury that is not even halfway significant in a major league baseball player's shoulder. And I tell them all this. I said, the last thing you want to do is have your throwing shoulder operated on. And I tell them that right up front. That's interesting. Yeah, well, so what's the treatment, Dr. Andrews and Dr. Cole, on the elbow? The problem is valgus extension overload. That means when you throw a baseball, there's tremendous stress across the inner side of your elbow, and, and that stress is related to the back side of your elbow, and the stabilizing part of your elbow that's so important is what everybody knows about, and that's the Tommy John's ligament, the so-called ulnar collateral ligament across the inner side of your elbow, and that's where the stress is applied when you throw a baseball, and and that's the injury that we're most often seeing. So that's the one that you hear about. That's the one that's most commonly operated on. And uh, it's fixable, but it's it, the results of fixing that reconstruction-wise is still not 100%. So you have to be careful even with the elbow that you don't operate on it when conservative treatment could get them well. So uh, it's still... Uh, a little bit of a dilemma, but it's not that hard to figure out what's wrong with the elbow compared to the shoulder, for me at least. I'm sure for you too, Brian. Yeah, it's 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 generally, you know, y- you can ask a few questions, and uh, for better or worse, sometimes you can make you can do you could do it just through a conversation, verify it by physical. You kind of know what an X-ray is going to show. MRI just verifies it. Addition, you know, it's an additive thing for a diagnosis, but you can talk to an athlete and figure out what's going on in the elbow pretty easily and verify it very quickly. And it's usually, it's far more straightforward in general, not always, uh, than what we see in the shoulder. Shoulder. That's why the shoulder is so interesting to all of us because it's such a complicated joint. And just because something is structurally not normal on an MRI, the disconnect between what's on that MRI and how a patient feels is, they can be miles apart. It's right and left field. You know, and that's why it's that's the art of medicine and trying to figure it out. And that's what I think people find so interesting with it. You made a, a really good point. And to make it simple, what I preach all the time is listen to the patient. And athletes are very good historians, particularly baseball players. If you just sit out and, and listen to them instead of trying to dominate the conversation, you usually know what's wrong with their shoulder and or their elbow or both uh, before you even get to your physical exam. So listening to the patient is important in anything we do in medicine, by the way. I think the average time before a physician interrupts a patient is seven seconds. Is that the number you use? 18 seconds. That (laughs) was a scientific study. 18 seconds? A doctor interrupts the patient trying to tell him what's, what's bothering him. And he starts talking himself and telling them what he thinks yep. before they even he even has a, 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 a solid conversation with the patient. You got to remember these patients are nervous; they're scared something bad's wrong with them. Uh, you got to sit down and, and let them get comfortable with you, so you can really get to the bottom and of what's wrong with them. And the problem in modern day medicine is that that takes some time. And the problem we all have, Brian, and I'm sure you can can identify to that, there's, there's so much paperwork and so much outside information that we don't have enough time in our daily schedule pro- to properly listen to a patient and get to know him. Uh, we walk out of the room a lot of times, don't even know their name. Yeah. Wonderful stuff, Dr. James Andrews, famed orthopedic surgeon. Dr. Andrews, thanks so much for joining us here on Sports Medicine Weekly. Really appreciate your uh, your time. 
Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Appreciate it, Dr. Andrews. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Brian. Back with more of our show, Sports Medicine Weekly. On 670 The Score. You're listening to Sports Medicine Weekly with Dr. Brian Cole and Steve Cashel on 670 The Score. And we're back. Steve Cashel, Dr. Brian Cole, Sports Medicine Weekly here on 670 The Score. Many thanks to our producer. It is Shane Reardon. Our coordinating producer is Teresa Ann Seeger. We are Chicago's premier sports medicine program coming your way each and every Saturday from 8 a.m. till 9 only on 670 The Score. Dr. Cole, recently we posted an article on our website, which is smwhome.com, or you can find it also at sportsmedicineweekly.com. It was the NBA may be pushing its tallest players to the point of injury, written by a gentleman, uh, Dr. Jalal Baig, B-A-I-G. Really interesting article. And uh, he's noticed that since the advent of the NBA, the average height of players has increased from 6'3 to what it is today at 6'7. As the height has increased, the league skill and athleticism has also ballooned. What I gained from this article, Dr. Cole, is that um, the old, you know, seven footers, seven one, weren't as mobile as the guys who are successful today at seven. You got to be able to run the floor. Now, you're the head team physician for the Chicago Bulls. Uh, I know John Paxson has talked about this. There's so many, you know, in the NBA uh, game, people are switching, you know, on defense, and you've got to be able to cover everyone on the floor, you know, and these seven footers can't just be these uh, these guys that just sit in the post or sit near the basket. You've got to be able to run. And does that lead to more injury? You know, the, 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 the natural tendency of all of us is to sort of figure out why things are happening, right? Yeah. I mean, it'd be great if we could neatly package all these variables, all these things to think about that lead to why someone gets injured. Uh, and then you and I just kind of focus on the things that are most obvious, like height, size, and so forth. Um, so I, you know, it, it's less than satisfying, unfortunately, in terms of what we think we know uh, as to why it's happening. But there are some things that are that are interesting. You know, there's no question, as the article points out, um, the average height has gone up. We tend to see uh, injuries and injury recovery differences in our big men than we do in other people, right? So a guard, for example, who has high velocity, short spurts, quick direction change, working the whole court, right, up, down, back, sideways, potentially is more prone to certain injuries than someone who's kind of a little more of a, you know, guy sitting in the lane, guy who's, you know, defensive and, and not moving the entire court. Um, taller, heavier, uh, different muscle physiology, built differently, you know? And when you think about it, you can almost predict what kinds of injuries one person might get based upon what they, where they stand, what they do, versus one who's running the whole court and more agile and potentially even much more athletic. Well, you can't say that uniformly because there's plenty of seven-footers who are very athletic too, you know? Are you saying fewer ACLs for seven-footers? I can't say fewer, but the if you just look at, well, statistically, you're going you're gonna to have more more people in that size and scope, you know, who are guard-like than you are, you know, big men, right? Because, uh, but we see them in big men. I mean, uh, or in bigger people. You know, certainly we do remember we had Omer Asik who had an ACL back in, you know, several years ago. When we had him and recovered beautifully, and yeah. some in some ways faster than some of our our other more athletic or you know agile guards, uh, mainly because of how they play and what they need to, to get back to. I've often said this, if you look at what it takes to get back to sport, it's not just you got to heal, you got to become an athlete again. 
And then you have to say, okay, how long does it take for a position player in baseball to get back after a shoulder thing versus a pitcher? How long does it take a center to get back after all things being equal, say an ACL reconstruction, then a guard, right? You can almost imagine that for them to get back to where they were to their pre-injury level, certain positions will afford that sooner more efficiently than others. Yes. You know, just that because of sense. what they have to do. I mean, it's, it's, it's intuitive. Uh, but I think some of these big guys and some of the collision aspects of it and uh, just the sheer force that goes into it and how hard they hit the ground and uh, and the lever arms they put across their bodies will, you know, lead to uh, poten- potentially, and we haven't shown this, and these are things we need to look at, higher risk for foot, ankle, or traumatic injuries and things like that versus ones that when you fatigue and require high energy direction change like ACL injury might be more prone to other types of positions. But we haven't looked at it with that degree of granularity. That's one thing the NBA has to really be, you know, they can be commended for lots of things. This is an additional point that they should be commended for the effort and time and commitment to trying to figure this out. So that's been my primary interest. I've been the, um, uh, the, uh, the chairman of the NBA Research Committee on the Physician Society side for a couple of years now, and we have a great group of individuals who we work collectively to look at these problems, and the NBA has been super collaborative in this regard. So we're learning a ton by looking at this data that we're collecting in the stadium, looking at schedules, looking at how the nature, the frequency of the injuries, upper, upper extremity, lower extremity, when they happen during the games, physiologic load, all of these variables. We're trying to make it as scientific as possible, but I still think we have so much more to learn. People don't know, Dr. Cole, of some of the data that's being collected in the arenas. How does that happen? You've got cameras in the ceilings, don't you? Yeah, the the NBA has made a uh, concerted effort to uh, collect uh, movement data, so acceleration, uh, minutes, uh, 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 positioning, uh, uh, almost what to create something that they call physiologic or biomechanical load. There's different indices or metrics they now can calculate over the course of play in the stadium for various players. The challenge is that doesn't tell the whole story because there's practice, right? There's days off, there's things they do on their own, there's training. So all of their efforts, their physical efforts are not in totality what's happening in the stadium but it's at least starts to give us a snapshot of what an athlete is doing. And there's a whole area of sports science that is dedicated to this. Um, Still more questions than answers, but I think it speaks to their interest in trying to reduce injury, keep these guys healthy, uh, and keep them with long, you know, prosperous careers. You know, think about it. This is a, it's a business, but they're also really concerned with their health. And most importantly, that's what we are as physicians. We're managing these guys. Does each team have their own data collector um, who's looking at it and putting it together for you guys? I mean, are you actually looking at film that was taken from these cameras uh, up above the arenas? No, I'm not. I mean, the, the teams keep their own data, their own metrics, but the NBA provides uh, league-specific and then team-specific blinding teams to what the other teams have. So there's no way, for example, that one team's going to get another team's data, yeah. uh, specific injury data, but the the aggregate data is actually really important and interesting to look at, too. Like, we can learn so much, because when you think about it, the frequency is pretty low overall, so it's hard to use one team measured against another to say why things are happening. But if we can pool it and get larger numbers, because it really is all about the numbers, and you need enough of these injuries, enough of these events to actually start making conclusions. All right. In this article, um, this gentleman suggests that game injuries do occur more often uh, research has showed in away games, which may be attributed to NBA travel schedules that affect sleep patterns and thus reaction times. Have you seen some of that in your uh, well, collection you know, as well? Uh, again, that's something they're looking at. And um, sleep is important. Recovery is important. 
travel is inadvertently associated with you know less sleep. Their schedules are completely screwed up. I mean, a lot of times they pl- some teams they play, they leave that night, they don't get back till you know four o'clock in the morning. Other teams they stay. Athletes might go out. They're, they don't get the recovery they need, or they get more sleep. There's just so much variability there, and then it depends upon what they practice, how they practice the next day. And the other thing is, coaches are pretty uh, sensitized now to minutes and things like that. So you have to look at that issue: is when you have these away, home, or back-to-back situations, how they're managing the way the athletes are playing in terms of the minutes and so forth. So everyone's kind of getting smarter together, uh, but uh, you can certainly look at away versus home and try to figure try to figure out what is it about that situation that's unique. And I can't tell you yet cause and effect, uh, but I can tell you that we're, we're looking really hard to say, does sleep matter? Does recovery matter? All that stuff is really important, uh, and it's not just the minutes they're playing or the frequency with, the, with which they're playing those minutes. Is there an injury epidemic in the NBA? A recent count found that 3,798 NBA games had been missed this year due to injuries, up 42% from the same point last season. Is that alarming? Um, yeah, it, certainly it's alarming. I think a lot of it is how it's spun. And, um, and again, statistics are only as good as how we evaluate them and, and sort of calculate them and then repackage them. Um, so I have, I, you know, in, in true transparency, I haven't looked at those numbers. Those are numbers that this, this, uh, this writer came up with. Right. And those are numbers that are not being circulated around the league. Um, so I, I, I can't refute it. And I don't know enough to say, you know, how much validity there is. Okay. And, I, and it, the, I will tell you this: we're a lot better now at calculating how things are happening. There's a, you know, there's a full court press uh, on the side of the athletic trainers in the society to um, collect data and to put it into a database. I mean, we really didn't know there isn't an organization that had a decent electronic medical record until recently. So your data is only as good as our ability to collect it. So bad data in is bad data out. And finally, over the last couple of years, we're actually keeping track of things that might matter. So we will. We have so many publications that are going to be coming out that address this issue that we just simply couldn't do before because we didn't have good data. And, and, and it could be that we're tracking things better now. So to say that there's this doubling or increase, we're doing a whole lot better at keeping track of things now than we ever were doing before. And that may be a factor as well. I found this interesting. In a forthcoming book called Human Error, scientist Nathan Lewis, or Nathan Lentz, I should say, writes about our imperfect evolution to uh, the anatomy that was less most vulnerable. Uh, the anatomical adaptation to upright walking never quite finished in humans. We have several defects that are a result of this failure to complete the process, most specifically the Achilles tendon. It's become, become the Achilles heel of the entire ankle joint, and the ACL endures much more strain than it is designed to. Yeah, that, that strikes well, me, though, that the, the upright walking never quite let me, finished let me, in you know, it's an interesting It's an interesting thought, okay? And you could even extend that to posture, yeah. you know, when you see... People are not comfortable walking upright. Posture is a huge issue, right? I have some of my tall uh, female volleyball players and basketball players, and you know this you know concept of their parents always reminding them sit upright, stand upright. They they're always slouched over. They're sure. not comfortable being tall. You yeah. Know? Until yeah. they get comfortable with that, they're at this risk for injury because their postures are so poor. It also impedes their athleticism. So I'll I'll give you another example of you know how we're anatomically incorrect. If I so I take care of a, f- a fair number of bodybuilders, right? Huge muscle mass in their arms. Yeah. If you saw the biceps tendon 
So you have your biceps, which is in your upper arm, right? So right. you make a muscle. I'm sure you've never done that in the mirror, right? You said the muscle you shirt <laughs> I off. I used to. I haven't yeah. done that in 50 <laughs> no, years. No, you don't want to scare yourself. <laughs> no. So, so you sit in front of the mirror and you make a biceps, right? Yep. If you were to surge, if I showed you a picture in surgery of what that tendon looks like, it's this dinky little tendon that can be eight millimeters, seven millimeters in diameter that supports one of the strongest muscles and the most violent muscles wow. in your body. Now, there are bigger muscles and muscles that have higher contractility and so forth, like your quads and so forth. But the biceps muscle in some people could be 18, 20 inches, right? Yeah. And there's this tendon that's no big, that's, that is, is basically, if you look at your pinky and divide it in half, that's how wide the tendon is. And it pulls off the bone in people because it just gets overwhelmed. Same thing for the yeah, pec. Yeah, the strain yeah. on that tendon, I imagine. Yeah, so all the forces get concentrated at the tendon. So we're, we're really not built well uh, for extreme sports. I can tell you that much. You know, that, so I'd lo- I haven't read the book, uh, and I think it's a, a book that's coming out. Is that what he's alluding to? Yes. In the article, yeah. I haven't read it, but I, I think there's probably going to be a lot of fascinating, fascinating uh, uh, evolutionary analogies there that uh, are worth talking about. Yeah, the book is uh, coming out, Human Errors by Scientist Nathan Lentz. That'll do it for this edition of Sports Medicine Weekly. Many thanks to our guest, Dara Torres, the Olympic swimmer, and also Dr. James Andrews, the famed orthopedic surgeon. Our producer, Shane Reardon, coordinating producer is Teresa Ann Seeger. Many thanks also to help from Dr. Brian Cole, Samantha Smith from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, and David Cole. For Dr. Brian Cole, I'm Steve Cashel. So long. Thanks for listening to Sports Medicine Weekly, and we'll talk with you next week for another edition of Full Hour at 8 a.m. only on 670 The Score. You've been listening to Sports Medicine Weekly, heard every Saturday morning at 8 with Dr. Brian Cole and Steve Cashel, only on Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com, Chicago Sports Station.